Section 67 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1, Mammals, by Charles Louis Cornish, Editor. Section 67. Monotremes, or Egg-Laying Mammals. With this group or order of the mammalian class, we arrive, as it were, on the borderland between the mere typical mammals and reptiles. In the last group, that of the marsupials, it was observed that the young were brought into the world at an abnormally early and helpless phase of their existence, and usually consigned, until able to see and walk, to a variously modified protective pouch. With the monotremes, a yet lower rung in the evolutional ladder is reached, and we find that the young are brought into the outer world as eggs, these being in the one case deposited in a nest or burrow, and in the other carried about by the parent in a rudimentary sort of pouch until they are hatched. The living representatives of this singular mammalian order are but few in number, being restricted in point of fact to only two distinctly differentiated family types, the echidna or porcupine anteater and the platypus. These monotremes, however, like the majority of the existing marsupials, are limited in their distribution to the Australasian region. The single species of the platypus is only found in Tasmania and the southern and eastern districts of the Australian continent, while the echidna numbers some three recognized species, two of which belong to Australia and Tasmania, and the third to New Guinea. The echidna The echidna porcupine anteater or porcupine, as it is commonly called by the Australian colonists, would seem at first sight to represent an animal in which the characters of the hedgehog and the common porcupine are interblended, the innumerable spines being longer than those of the former, but less in length than those of the last-named animal. The head, with no externally visible ears and remarkable, elongated beak-like snout, however, at once proclaims it to be altogether distinct from these. The animal has no teeth, and the tiny mouth at the termination of the beak-like snout simply constitutes an aperture for the extrusion of the worm-like gluttonous tongue wherewith, after the manner of the true anteaters, it licks up the inhabitants of the ants' nests upon which it feeds. For tearing down the ants' nests and obtaining its customary food, as also for its inveterate burrowing propensity, the feet, and more especially the front ones, are provided with strong, blunt, and very powerful claws. The male animal is in addition armed on the hind feet, with a peculiar supplementary spur, which is, however, still more conspicuously developed in the platypus. Three distinct species of the echidna are recognized by zoologists. The one peculiar to the cooler climate of Tasmania is remarkable for its more slender spines, the much greater abundance of the long bristle-like hairs, and the thickness of the seal-brown underfur, as compared with the typical Australian form. In the northwest New Guinea, the largest and most aberrant form is met with. 
Normally it has only three toes in place of five to each foot. The spines are very long and thick, the body is deeper and more compressed, and the animal stands comparatively high upon its feet. The writer, during his residence in Tasmania, had several examples of the local species as domestic pets. For the first few days they were very shy and untractable, burrowing into the earth and seeking to escape, or presenting an impenetrable cheval de frise of sharp pointed spines to the hands that sought to caress them. After a short interval, however, the creatures become entirely reconciled to human society and the small amount of restraint to which they were subjected. They would follow their owner about the garden, or, flattening their bodies and spreading out their limbs to the greatest extent, lie basking in the sun close to where he might be seated. They also apparently appreciated being carried, slung across their owner's arm, after the manner of a lapdog. Living in the near vicinity of unreclaimed bushland, it was found possible to keep these echidnas well supplied with their customary food. They were in fact permitted to forage on their own account. Liberated amidst their normal surroundings, they would walk leisurely from one ant hill to another, tearing down the side of it with their powerful front claws, and appropriating its living contents with the greatest relish. It was observed, however, in this connection, that the echidna paid attention entirely to the succulent white larvae and pupal phases of the insects, with which the inner chambers of the ant hills are customarily crowded, and that adult ants, as they bounded in the tracts near at hand or elsewhere, were altogether neglected. In addition to this natural food, these animals were supplied daily with a saucer of either well-softened bread or porridge and milk, for which they evinced a decided appreciation, assimilating this food dexterously, though somewhat slowly, with the aid of their long protrusal tongues. Allowed to wander about the house, they displayed a most inquisitive turn of mind, peering into every crevice and climbing upon every accessible article of furniture. The echidna usually produces only one egg at a time. It is relatively small, not larger than a sparrow's egg, but equally and obtusely rounded at both extremities, and with a white, leathery shell like that of a reptile. For some time previous to hatching, this egg is carried in a skin fold or rudimentary pouch in the parent's abdomen, much similar to that possessed by many of the marsupials. The young one is also retained in this pouch for some weeks after escaping from the egg. When finally leaving the pouch, it is between three and four inches in length, and the spines are in an altogether rudimentary condition. Examples of the Australian echidna have on several occasions been in residence at the zoo, while the honoured Walter Rothschild has been fortunate in keeping living specimens of both this and the very rare three-toed New Guinea variety in his admirably appointed menagerie at Tring. The platypus. The egg-laying mammal known as the duck-billed platypus differs very essentially from the echidna, both in aspect and habits. It is adapted especially for an amphibious life and for feeding on mollusks, worms, and insects, 
which it abstracts from the muddy bed or banks of the rivers that it frequents. The somewhat depressed ovate body is covered with short, dense fur, much resembling in color and texture that of an otter. The tail is short and flattened like that of a beaver, but in place of being naked and scaly, as in that animal, is covered on the upper surface more particularly with long, coarse, bristle-like hairs that intercross one another in all directions. Neither is this tail used, as with the beaver, as a mason's trowel, it being simply subservient as a steer oar. The feet are all four distinctly webbed, the membranes of the front feet in particular projecting to some distance beyond the extremities of the claws, and so communicating to these members a singular resemblance to the feet of a duck. The head of the platypus tapers off from the body without any conspicuous neck, and terminates in a most remarkable duck-like beak, having at its base a supplementary membranous ferrule-like structure, which would seem to have served the purpose of limiting the distance into which the beak of the animal is thrust into the mud during the quest for its accustomed food, and at the same time protecting the creature's eyes. The mouth of the adult platypus contains no teeth, simply a few horny plates, but singularly to relate, rudimentary teeth exist temporarily in the young animals. These provisional teeth, moreover, correspond in a marked manner with those of some ancient types of mammals, which occur as fossils in the tertiary deposits of North America. The platypus, with relation to the obliteration of its teeth in the adult state, is regarded as a very exceptionally modified form, and not as the immediate prototype of the ordinary mammals. The platypus is found in Tasmania and in the south and eastern districts of Australia only, being altogether unknown in the west and north. Being especially shy and retiring, and to a large extent nocturnal in its habits, it is not frequently seen, even in districts where it may be rather abundant. The animal excavates burrows of so great a length as from thirty to fifty feet in the river banks that it frequents, and at the extreme end of these burrows it constructs a loose nest of weeds and root fibers, which it uses as its retreat, and also for the production of its eggs and young. There are invariably two entrances to these burrows, the one being under water and the other usually opening into a tangle of brushwood at some little distance from the water's edge. As many as from one to four eggs and young may be produced at a time, but two is the more general number. From the first it would appear that the eggs and young are deposited and nursed in the nest, not being retained or carried about in a pouch, as observed of the echidna. The late Dr. George Bennett of Sydney, New South Wales, has probably placed on record the most detailed account of the ways and life habits of these remarkable animals, though it did not fall to him to solve the much-vexed question as to whether or not they were oviparous. This discovery, as applied also to the like phenomenon, in the case of the echidna, was the outcome within quite recent years of the researches of Mr. Caldwell. After much indefatigable exploration, in which he was ably assisted by the natives, Dr. Bennett obtained from the extremity of an exceptionally long burrow, 
a mother and a pair of half-grown young. The young ones survived several weeks and proved most droll and interesting pets. In playful habits they much resembled puppies, chasing and rolling one another over and pretending to bite with their toothless bills. They were also much addicted to climbing every scalable article of furniture, including even a tall bookcase, which they would negotiate by swarming up behind it as a sweep climbs a chimney, with their backs to the wall and their feet against the back of the bookcase. The sleeping and waking hours that both these and other examples kept were observed to be very irregular, for while usually most lively and disposed to ramble after it grew dusk, they would at other times come out of their own accord in the daytime, or perhaps one would ramble about while the other slept. When going to sleep, they would roll themselves up in a perfect ball, the head, tail, and limbs being closely folded over the abdomen. The food question appears to have presented almost insurmountable difficulties so far against the permanent acclimatization of these interesting animals in any of our European zoological gardens. At the Melbourne Zoo, some considerable success was obtained by fencing off a small pond abounding with insects and well-established water plants for their reception. And in this instance, they had also the advantage of being brought speedily and within a few hours of their capture to their new home. For their long voyage to Europe, the provision of an adequate quantity of living insects or other aquatic organisms is by no means easy task. They have, however, been known to thrive on broken-up river mussels for the space of two or three weeks, and would probably have done so for a longer period. This material might easily be stored for their use on board ship. An incident concerning the natural predilections of the platypus that fell within the writer's observation in Tasmania might also be utilized in their experimental transportation. At the trout and salmon rearing establishment on the River Plenty, of which the writer was at the time superintendent, the platypus is proved to be most destructive to the spawn, both deposited in the hatching boxes and upon the natural spawning beds, or reds, as they had in consequence to be systematically destroyed. This being the case, it is probable that they would be found to thrive well on a diet consisting to a large extent of the preserved rose or spawn of any easily procurable fish, such as the moray perch or cod, and of which adequate supplies might with facility be stored aboard ship. The admixture in all cases of a certain amount of sand or mud with their provided pabulum would appear to be essential for digestive purposes, such material being always found in considerable quantities in their stomachs when dissected. A distinguishing feature which the male platypus shares in common with the echidna is the peculiar spur developed on its hind foot. It is in this case, however, much larger and sharper and has been accredited with aggressive functions and poisonous properties. There can be little doubt, however, that they are normally used by the animal only as clasping or retaining instruments during intercourse with the female at the breeding season. At the same time, undoubted cases of persons receiving severe wounds from these animal spurs have been placed on record. 
One such, that fell within the writer's cognizance, happened on the Murray River, on the Victorian and New South Wales boundary. A young fisher-lad, on taking up his nets, found a half-drowned platypus entangled in them, and whilst disengaging it, it convulsively gripped his hand between the two spurs, the points penetrating deeply into the flesh on either side. The result was a festering wound that refused to heal for many months, and for such time entirely deprived the lad of his use of that hand. The fur of the platypus, dressed so as to remove the outer and longer series of hairs, nearly resembles that of the fur seal in both color and texture, and as a rare local product is highly prized for the manufacture of carriage rugs and other articles. With the egg-laying echidna and platypus, we terminate the mammalian series, and they pave the way to the typical egg-laying animals which follow. End of section 67 End of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1, Mammals, by Charles Louis Cornish, Editor